0: Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about we talk about faith. Welcome to Round Hill Radio. We have a special guest today, and we're going to be talking about refugee resettlement. About a year ago, Round Hill Community Church became very involved with several other organizations in town as we began to respond to the plight of Afghan evacuees who had made our way, who made their way to our part of the state, looking to resettle and, in essence, to begin their lives all over again. So today, we're speaking with Bruce Winningham. He and his wife, Jill, joined Roundhill Community Church last October 2022. So, Bruce, I would like to know what brought you concurrently to this church and to the unique initiative in refugee resettlement.
1: Well, Ed, good morning. Um, I've got a connection to the church because my brother's been a member here with his wife and children for a number of years, and I know how fondly he speaks of it. And of course, um, my mom and dad are both buried in the columbarium uh, graveyard of uh, Round Hill Church, and so I've been touched by that ever since, Ed, you presided over their burial.
0: So Bruce, it's it's wonderful to have you. I've had a chance to learn a lot from you and to be inspired by you during the course of the past year, because I know how committed you are to uh, working with the Afghan evacuees and, and also to refugee resettlement. So perhaps it would make sense to offer our listeners a, a little bit of an explanation of the term refugee resettlement. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, the notion of... of Welcoming refugees in a formal program was created in 1948 following uh, the realization of the magnitude of the Holocaust and the lack of a system that America would have needed in order to be more assertive in rescuing people from that uh, calamity. And so right afterwards, they created this program that is specifically designed to welcome people who are in flight from persecution from their own government. And the system basically has three main components to it. One is safety and security of the fleeing people. Second is to find a location for them to live in a new home, in a new country. And then thirdly, to transition them from refugee into new resident and then ultimately new citizen of their new country.
0: So during the past year, I think that many people I've known and certainly here at Roundhill Community Church have struggled to get the language right in terms of, uh, you know, what is the exact name of the program and designation that people have when they're going through this process. So how does refugee resettlement differ from the asylum program?
1: Well, here in the United States, and to a degree uh, elsewhere in the world, the subject of asylum is a daily topic with so many people who have fled from Latin America or have come through Latin America from Africa trying to get to the United States. And it's called the Asylum Program. And when people arrive at at the southern border normally, they are asylum seekers. And the system is to then grant someone the status of, of a petitioning to receive asylum. And they arrive with nothing. They've often taken a bus from... Honduras all the way across Mexico, or they've gotten themselves from Venezuela to that border. And the government then either sends them back or calls them asylum applicant. But they're allowed to come into the country and bring children in, but they don't receive any real status. They're not on uh, uh, Medicaid, which is the, the health care system for low income they don't receive uh, the food program called SNAP. They, they receive nothing, and yet their waiting period can be as much as two to three years before they find out their status.
0: So say a bit more, um, Bruce, just in terms of uh, the, the, the contrast uh, with this other program.
1: So in refugee, in, in this situation, uh, you're fleeing a country that is persecuting you. You're in fear for your, for your life and you apply to the United Nations for refugee status, and then um, you can apply to the United States for that to be your final destination, and then Homeland Security and other organizations in the United States then further examine your situation, your background, and if you're allowed into the country, not as an asylum seeker, but as a refugee, you land at Dulles Airport or JFK Airport or Miami Airport already with a social security number, a work permit, eligibility for Medicaid, you're already on a food stamp program, you are welcomed in as someone we want to see become a citizen.
0: So there's, there's a real significant difference between these uh, programs, right?
1: Yes. it's uh, the Only a few get uh, the refugee stature, whereas there are tens of thousands of people who come into the country with asylum-seeking. But um there's a difference in how you're cared for and the amount of support that you're going to get from American agencies. When you get off the plane as an as a uh a refugee, there's a government agency person there, there's a local social service person there, there are probably volunteers there welcoming you in. And of course, there's no one really welcoming you in as an asylum seeker.
0: Right, yeah. So I just want to uh um make one more comment uh just thinking about our conversation today, uh, even though we've been working away at the resettlement of Afghan evacuees over a year, this process is ongoing and there is a certain period of time when refugee resettlement agencies are tremendous value, but then as you've indicated, uh, there's a drop-off and now these families are still trying to figure out how to make it work. And that's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation today so that we don't lose that sense, that ongoing, uh, you know, commitment, right, um, as we go forward. So, Bruce, you, uh, you offered to join with Round Hill Community Church and other local groups here in Greenwich. We met around a table in the parlor. Um, seems like a long, long time ago. We started a new refugee resettlement initiative, Rising Hope for those who had fled Afghanistan when the Taliban took over. So what was your reasoning, your thinking, um, behind offering to assist at that time? It's one
1: of the most remarkable ways I've seen in which someone who wants to volunteer their time to, to make a, a, a real difference in the lives of other people. Most agencies really don't need a lot of volunteers. They need the budget for more social workers, more counselors, more more skilled um, uh, rehabilitation people. They don't need you know carloads full of volunteers. The challenge here, though, is that the refugee program depends upon volunteers. In fact, When you arrive as a refugee, you're going to get U.S. government oversight from the Homeland Security Department and from the Department of Health and Human Services. You're going to get help from the state agencies, such as the Department of Social Services and maybe the Education Department. And you're going to have a local social service agency, a nonprofit in your community, that will also watch over you. But the odds that families who receive those three supports, U.S., state, and local, for them to get to the middle class, to rise out of the, the impoverished state that they arrived in to the middle class, the odds are about one out of three will make it. Hmm. Right. On the other hand, if there's a fourth participant, volunteers, who can stay with this family beyond the first year and help kids through school, help moms learn English, help dads find jobs, help sons learn how to uh, apply for college help daughters to learn uh, to finish their educations or learn how to be an educated person if they weren't allowed in their own country, those volunteers can help that family get to the middle class 70% of the time. Wow! So there's a sense for the volunteer that they're making an enormous difference that you can't make when you try to help other agencies.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's an extraordinary difference. By the way, Bruce, I'm thinking about this, uh, you know, you use the phrase when a fourth component is added, and uh, over the years I've read several stories about expeditions, uh, often in extreme environments, and there is this, um, I don't exactly know how to describe it, but there's this sort of ongoing story of the fourth companion who shows up when some of these expeditions have been mysteriously challenged. And uh, T.S. Eliot actually writes about this in one of his poems, how a fourth person has sometimes shown up when there have actually only been three persons present, but they all have said at some point later, who was that fourth person who was there helping us out? Well, I think you've identified the fourth here. (laughs) And Ed, I'll build
1: on that because the system provides that governmental support for one year. And then the funds you know, are con- concluded, new waves of, of uh, refugees arrive, and then those families are really left to fend for themselves, and often they, they don't break out of the welfare trap, right. they don't break out of minimum wage, uh, sometimes uh, male uh, high school students don't graduate, and the, the, the family unravels and they wonder, why did we come? So it's the volunteers who then are the only ones left standing. The fourth person becomes the only person who's still watching that family through the second and the third and the fourth year. I'm in my sixth year with one family.
0: (laughs) So Bruce, what have been your observations of how the system here in Greenwich has been working on behalf of refugees from Afghanistan?
1: There are a lot of uh, 80,000 fled from Afghanistan. We're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. Uh, and all came into the country really quickly, and many of them, uh, there wasn't the support that they could have received that I was just describing because it was overwhelming to the State Department of Social Services <clears throat> or it was overwhelming to the nonprofits, uh, or maybe there was no volunteers. What's amazing <clears throat> here in Greenwich is that The state agencies have been incredibly supportive, and the governor has been incredibly supportive, including giving driving uh, tests in the the native language of Afghans. Uh, The the two churches that are involved have been incredibly supportive, as well as a a synagogue. So it's the three uh, um, houses of worship. The two nonprofits, local, have been incredibly dynamic and supportive. And so we've gotten to see it at its best.
0: So as you, you, know, you continue to think about uh, going forward in all these various ways, w- what would you like to share about the families in our care, those you've come to know personally and in so many ways in your role as a refugee resettlement volunteer?
1: Well, I, I, I'm in awe of them. And uh, I am, I'm better off and enriched every day because I know them, even though they benefit from the fact that we... We help them. This is a family that uh, for centuries has lived in the mountains of of central and northern Afghanistan. They were farmers, they had orchards, they raised their children in the mountain valleys. A couple of generations ago, they emigrated down to the capital city of Kabul and brought with them their skills in rug making, hand-woven Persian rugs, Persian style rugs. And they then started city jobs They created city businesses while also expanding their rug business. And because they're resourceful, because they're creative, because they're bright, uh, they were successful in the businesses that they started.
0: Hmm. So really remarkable entrepreneurs, right? Who've had a long history of knowing how to make things work in a very difficult environment.
1: Yeah, it challenges the myth that a, a, a refugee will simply relax in the welfare system and not try to uh, thrive, or perhaps, is not a product- productive person because they came from a, a developing country. These are people who were highly ambitious within mm. the constraints of their own country.
0: It's uh, it's exciting. It's daunting challenging, but also exciting to think about the kinds of gifts and skills they could bring to this country. Uh, they've created, uh, right, in all of the initiatives that they've created thus far, does that, does that help to inspire you as you're trying to go through this long process of helping people make good connections? Well,
1: it is because I see how, how, how thoughtful and how diligent they are as a family. They uh, began uh, a retail store business, and in a luxury area of downtown Kabul, they were selling women's fashion. Uh, they opened up a, a gymnasium for indoor soccer and became a destination for young men and women, women who wanted to master soccer. And it's a crucible of skills because you play soccer on a hard surface in a small space with a heavy ball mm. and the foot handling skills and the ball handling and passing skills are uh, can create uh, uh, stars. For example, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo began playing indoor small field soccer, which is called futsal. Hmm. Uh, and so they, they they opened a number of retail businesses in Kabul, and these are just people who had come down from the mountains uh, as farmers.
0: Wow, um, Bruce. What were the circumstances to the, you know? The, can you describe some of the circumstances that led to this? really impressive family, having to flee the country and then seek refugee status?
1: Yes. During um, just roughly the period from 2008 to 2018 was a time of hopefulness in Afghanistan. The American military presence was there. There was a lot of investment through the American embassy. We were building universities. We were building schools and bridges. We were repairing hospitals. Uh, We were encouraging uh, young women to get jobs in the government when before they weren't allowed even to walk into a government office, and now they were running parts of the administration. Um, this family uh, had a construction company, and, and they did their work through the Army Corps of Engineers. And they were they helped to build a number of uh, things, including something called the American, uh, American University of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So that targeted them, made them vulnerable <clears throat> if there was to be a Taliban takeover. Um, secondly, they... Um, worked for the, the embassy in many ways and helped visiting dignitaries and helped uh, diplomats to solve problems uh, with working with uh, nonprofits. profits uh, Save the Children was, was there. Um, a care was there. Uh, a number of, of, of supportive programs were there, and this family w- did work for the embassy uh, and were paid in American dollars. Another family member lived inside the military base in Kandahar, and went out on missions with American soldiers. Usually these were humanitarian missions to rescue uh, towns that had a a water problem or a farming problem or a construction problem, but they often found themselves in combat with the Taliban. So that's another family member who uh, would have created uh, a black mark in the eyes of the Taliban were the Taliban to take over. And so they were at risk, and by 2018, the Taliban was beginning to take over as American soldiers began to leave. And um, this family, economically successful, educated, including the educated girls, um, clever in business, supportive of the American effort in many ways, both diplomatic and in war, they knew that they were uh, at risk. And as the Taliban became more prominent in 2019, 2020, They started to come around the neighborhood of this family asking, what are they up to? What are they doing? Who who was that person who was just visiting them? And they felt the pressure and the the menace of the rising Taliban
0: strength as 2021 approached. So uh, our family uh, is also of an ethnicity that's been singled out by the Taliban as a target for not just persecution, but also extermination and genocide. Is that right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so in addition to all those reasons to be resented by the Taliban uh, system, oppression often requires that a tyrant choose one group of people to be everyone's enemy. And it turns out that this family are an ethnicity called Hazara, and they, they worship the Shia faith, whereas the Taliban are Sunni. But they also are descended from Asian ancestors back in the 1300s, and you can see slight Asian features in their eyes so that they can, you can recognize a Hazara person. And, and Sunni has decided they're not legitimate Muslims, and therefore they must be all killed. Hmm. So in addition to everything else that made them vulnerable, their ethnicity made them vulnerable, and, and thus uh, right in the center of why the um, refugee program was created. Also, uh, increasingly, uh, tyrants around the world, when they want to enforce their regime, they don't merely kill the person who has um, offended them, they kill the whole family. Yeah, And so, uh, all children, uh, all wives, daughters, everyone was in danger because of the work that the fathers and the sons had been doing for the American, United States.
0: Yeah. So... In August 2021, we all watched as Afghans rushed to the Kabul airport, hoping to get on one of the last military planes out of Afghanistan. It was just such a horrifying time. What did our family do? They The the grandfather sent some of their sons
1: down to the Kabul airport to, to see whether it was feasible to get on some of those planes. And the, the boys discovered quickly that you first have to get through a Taliban perimeter. And since they were Hazara, they might, they might have been captured right there. Then you have to get through, if you got through the Taliban perimeter, you had to get through the, the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps and the army basically fought with people who spoke a different language, who spoke the language of Sunni. And thus their phones and their documents were in a language that the soldiers didn't recognize and the odds were they were not going to get through. And surely they wouldn't get through every wife, every daughter, every child. Some would be taken. So they came back to their dads and said, we can't get there. And plus, it's bedlam on those planes. Sure. Uh, just People are just shoved into the holds of, of uh, uh, cargo planes. We'd be broken up. We'd be sent to different parts of the United States if we ever got there. And we might spend years just finding each other again. Mm. So they decided that's not our way out
0: and this is a large family
1: this is a family of of a total of 50 grandmothers grandfathers sons and daughters grandchildren aunts and uncles and the men were determined that anyone left behind would be killed and so they resolved we will all leave together and we'll either all perish or we'll all survive
0: So, eventually, all of these family the members arrived in the United States. I mean, I can't even imagine the, the terror and the tumult and upheaval that went along with that journey. So, how then did they end up in Stamford and, and Greenwich?
1: Well, the, the fathers and grandfathers decided we're going to have to leave the country another way. And so, instead of... So, they fled Kabul right away as the Taliban was swarming into all of the cities. They went north to find a city where they could escape the country. And um, so they went west and north and up through the mountain passes to another city. And from there they were able to get out. And then they could join the fleeing Afghans who were all being sent to the same place. And so they joined the rest of the people that had flown out of Kabul. And then from there uh, made their way to the United States with the rest of the 80,000 fleeing Afghans.
0: Um, and then that, that next stage, uh, Bruce, as they, as they did in fact arrive in this country, how did they, they make their way here?
1: Well, this family landed in Philadelphia in the night, in the, in the, on a cold December night, and they were put into vans and taken to a, a nearby Army base called Fort Dix. And in fact, all 80,000 were taken to Camp Pendleton, McGuire Air Force Base, Fort Bliss, um, they all went to a military base to be you know, examined and uh, have their backgrounds checked a little bit, but they didn't really learn much, even though they stayed there a couple of months, and uh, one day, um, they were put in a van, and they were all sent to different towns, and our family was sent to Connecticut, and they all arrived here together. They uh, Some were in different cities, but they all got to Connecticut, and um, are all alive, they're all there, they all are now supporting each other as they try to learn how to make a new life in America.
0: So as I, I look back at this past year, I've learned so much from you, Bruce. I remember um, the very, very early days of, of this uh, movement here in the community when Jewish Family Services reached out for assistance. Uh, The Greenwich International Ladies Group, the North Greenwich Congregational Church, the First Presbyterian Church, Round Hill Community Church all became linked. Uh, We worked together as the Rising Hope Resettlement Group, and and here we are now. And Bruce, you're continuing to lead us forward. And, you know, what would you say or can you possibly say— Something just about how this has affected your faith, your own spiritual life as you've gone through this past. You've been doing this for more than a year, but looking back at this last year in particular, what would you say has been the most, uh, the strongest impact on you personally?
1: I would say that of all of the community work that I've done over the years through churches and through community agencies, that you're only needed as a volunteer for small tasks to assist professionals in caring for the homeless, the hungry, the wounded, the lost, the ill, uh, the struggling. And then you go home and, and all you did was help out a little bit. Whereas here, as the agencies wind down their work, the, the sense of, of being enormously needed Mm. is mm-hmm. is inspiring, it's humbling, <laughs> and, and each day I, I feel I made uh, left a footprint on this earth mm. in a way that is lasting.
0: Well, you, you certainly have, and you've inspired others of us to join with you, and one of the reasons we're having this conversation, and we're going to have more of them, is that we're not going to continue to lose our focus uh, on this family and we will continue to reach out to others to join us on the journey and Bruce thank you so much for everything you've done and thank you for being our guest on Roundhill Radio.
1: Thank you for inviting me here. I'm glad to tell the story.
0: Thank you for listening. Roundhill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Roundhill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillradio.org.